Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Brad Stewart will join us to discuss facing death. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and our world-famous question of the week, coming right up, here, on the Grok's Science Show. the Grok's Science Show. At the end of every life, there's death, one of the most profound aspects of our existence. How do we face death? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Brad Stewart. Dr. Stewart has practiced internal medicine and is the emergency room, the hospital, and the ICU, spent more than 25 years as a hospice medical director, and founded a national model of care to assist people with serious illness at home. He has penned the new book, Facing Death, Spirituality, Science, and surrender at the end of life. Dr. Stewart, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Ship. Thanks for inviting me. Certainly a topic that no one likes to dwell too much on, but one which we inevitably all have to, and that, of course, is facing death. Curious why you decided to put this book together. Well, actually, when I was in medical school back in the 70s, I had experiences with patients that alarmed me. The way we treat particularly elderly, very sick patients was just felt that many aspects of it were wrong. We were all about curing and very little about healing. So I wanted to write a book back then, but that was almost 50 years ago, and that's how long it takes the dust to settle, I guess. But I finally decided to write this book to get back to the roots of why it seemed so important to me, and I think others, my colleagues in hospice and palliative care, why is it so important to pay attention to people at the end of life? And what is it about that that's crucial to understand? I think it comes down to it's something spiritual. And I wrote the book to explore that. I, I think spirituality may be a little different than what we normally think of as religion. It really comes into play, though, when people are suffering and frightened at the end of life. So I just wanted to write about my experiences, what I think is really critical to understand about ourselves as humans, and that really comes into sharp focus at the end of life. What have you learned how people approach death in various contexts? Well, I think the way most people approach death, I've had cancer myself. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. It was very unexpected, and it blew the walls out of my proverbial psychological home, I I was totally shocked by it. And that was after I had dealt with people at the end of life for years. I thought I had the death thing kind of wired, and I did not. It's an existential threat. When you find that your life is coming to an end and you really get that deep inside, you just can't help but be shocked. But the critical thing to understand that, that I think I've found after being with many, many people who've gone through this and had my own experience, is that there's a part of yourself that's threatened. I think the Buddhists have an interesting take on this. It's yourself that's threatened. Buddhists feel that the self doesn't really exist. If you persist in meditation and study, uh, you can look through 
and find inside or underneath yourself a much more elemental and basic level of life and reality. And I'm not a Buddhist. I never was. I found myself stumbling on this, that it's the self that's alarmed when it's threatened with extinction. But if you've experienced psychedelics, which science is now studying pretty intensively, or you look at near-death experiences, which used to be regarded kind of as woo-woo, but groups of investigators are now studying those as well. And you look at meditation and its effects on the brain, which through functional MRI we're studying also, all of those things point to the fact that there's another level of existence that lives right inside our day-to-day consciousness, the way our self perceives life, that's even more real and fundamental to who we actually are. And in, in the book, I've referred to that as the I am but there's all kinds of different terms for it. I just tried to pick a, a term that didn't have a lot of baggage attached to it. So I, I think those two levels of our own existence are really important to distinguish. And they're obvious once you see them and experience them differently in meditation, you can directly experience the I am, the elemental level of yourself. And in psychedelics, that's a whole other topic, but that's a doorway to the same realization. So I think the the existential threat to the self is what's so alarming about dying. And people, the folks that I've been with going through that, you can get over that hump of alarm and emotional shock to a place that's actually very peaceful. More often than not, I think when people do the right work and good hospice programs and palliative care folks can help with that, Uh, you can get to a place where you're really ready to let go because letting go is is the key to making it through the end of life. And also it's the key to spirituality. And I I think that's no coincidence. The end of life, if one thinks that everything that one is is ensconced in the brain, then everything that was a person is then gone. Yeah, that's a very alarming prospect, right? (laughs) I mean, it's it's so ironic. I came into medical school by way of brain research. I wrote a couple of papers at at University of Pennsylvania along with very eminent researcher in brain biophysics. And then I uh, got into medicine and uh, practiced for years. And it's only now that many investigators, I think, are beginning to realize that the consciousness may not be what we think it is. And what I mean by that is you just said something that I think is really important. If you are of the persuasion, and I think 90-some percent of scientists probably are, that the brain, the, the organ of the brain produces consciousness, then you're really up against it when uh, realize you're going to die. Because when your brain ceases to exist, that's annihilation for you if, and who you are if consciousness is just a product of that wet machinery inside your skull. But I think what's beginning to be revealed through research, particularly in psychedelics, and I think there's some very surprising findings now that are beginning to indicate that we may be wrong about this whole thing about the brain and consciousness. If you look at evidence coming out of studies on meditation, studies on psychedelics, and the few data we have 
on recalled experiences of death, which is the, the current way to refer to near-death experiences, all of those have something in common, and that is that awareness is expanded at the same time as critical brain centers that are responsible for our experience of consciousness and our experience of being a self are inhibited. In other words, when you turn off critical brain networks that allow you to be a self, when you turn those down, which is what happens in meditation, or turn them way, way down and really inhibit them, which is what happens with psilocybin and psychedelics, or turn them totally off, which is what happens in near-death experiences. And there's one really interesting story that uh, is in the book about a woman who had that happens. Her brain was completely inactivated during brain surgery. And I relate what she told about her experiences. Her brain was not functioning at all, but her experience, including things that she saw in the operating room that she couldn't possibly have seen if she weren't conscious, were much more real to her and important to her than her waking awareness ever was. So the bottom line with current brain research seems to show that turning off one brain network in particular, which is the default mode network, I have a lot of time to get into those details, but it's, it's the part of your brain that really helps you know yourself and centers your consciousness in yourself. Turn that down or off and your consciousness expands. So it's a, it's a paradox. If you believe, and I think it now it looks more like a belief that your brain is what produces consciousness, you have to question that uh, in light of these findings, because <laughs> how could that be if you turn the brain down or off and awareness expands? So I think we have a lot more work to do there, but it has real bearing on our understanding of what happens at death. And I think I'll leave it at that for now, but the book goes into that whole question a lot more deeply. I wonder also about alterations that occur in dementia, this sort of slow whittling away that accompanies that the aspects of the individual seem to disappear over time. And in some ways, that, that's almost a more disheartening person just vanishes slowly. Yeah, dementia is very distressing for everyone because the self does dissolve. I think as areas of the upper brain, the cerebrum that are really affected in dementia, parts of the brain that make us ourselves as those become disabled, the self melts away and uh, at, at a, a rapid rate in some cases or a slow rate in others. But that's not the same experience. That's not necessarily the same experience of the self that I'm talking about. It's funny if, if you spend time with people with dementia. I've spent a lot of time in nursing homes, had a lot of patients with dementia. I, I know I can remember a couple of or, or a few different cases where people hadn't spoken a word for years. They were just, their personalities were gone. They had no language. They didn't recognize anyone. Their, their children, really distressing for everyone involved. But if a person came into the nursing home and played the piano and sang old songs, those people would suddenly light up and sing right along with the songs and remember all the words. I think there there's a lot we don't understand about what happens in dementia and, and what parts of the brain are affected. There are parts of the self 
that live on, even in the most serious cases of dementia. And again, I think we have a lot more work to do to really get what the the self actually is. I think in the book, what I try to really emphasize is that everyone walks around assuming they know who they are. Your brain is evolved to construct a self for you, and that's your vehicle to live your life. What most people don't understand, and I think this is where really mystical spirituality, what we've heard from visionaries for thousands of years, is that there's a more basic level of awareness down in the middle of that self that is connected with the eternal or with the ultimate. I don't want to get into religion here, but some religious people would say that's where God lives. And that's why meditation has been used for millennia to help folks center in that more elemental level of the I am, which lives deep inside what we think of as the self, as ourselves. That level of the I am that's just pure consciousness is not that tough to access. There are lots of books out there that give us hints on how to do that. And spiritual practice, I think, honestly, is all about that. And that's the place, the I am, the elemental, empty consciousness that, say, Zen Buddhism is uh, all about. Maybe what lasts through the experience of death, all the near-death experience stories have certain elements in common. And one of them is that the, the place that people continue to know they're alive uh, survives death, even as they leave their body, look back and see that dead thing lying there, and, and they're still very aware that they exist. It's just that their body's no longer alive. And I think it's so great that science is beginning to study those things because uh, there's just too many stories now that we have resuscitation science and critical care that revive people after cardiac arrest with increasing frequency, we have a lot more mystics out there. People who have died, been revived, and have stories to tell. And I think some critical care docs are actually leading the research on these experiences because I don't think, think we can ignore them or just call them imaginary or woo-woo anymore. They're real. And what do they mean? I don't think we know yet. But I don't think death is just what we have thought it is. I think there's more to it than we have thought. And the reason I wrote the book is I think it's important to understand that because there are things that every individual can do to get ready for that event, to find that place in yourself that's more central and more basic to your own awareness, uh, your own connection to the eternal. Science doesn't have a lot of time for the eternal or the ultimate, but I think science may be ready for a new paradigm once this data gets absorbed and scientists, probably young ones, realize that we need to expand our assumptions about who we are in order to study consciousness properly and, and see what these things really mean. If there is some sort of base substrate of consciousness that pervades throughout the universe and then continues to past our demise, a lot of folks would say, well, okay, that might be fine, but everything that they conceive of themselves as being, their memories, their desires, their hopes, if that's lost, then whatever continues on is only a fraction of was, and that itself might not be sufficient. 
Yeah, what I would say to that is, uh, yes, I, I completely agree. And I'm one of those people, too. I mean, like I said, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I couldn't believe it. I It, it really hit me hard, and it was a disaster. What it's critical to understand is that's from the perspective of yourself. After I wrote this book, I had to read it a few times before I came to understand that where this book came from was not my everyday self. It And I wrote it on purpose this way. It came from the place where I went when I worked with people who were suffering and terrified. And, you know, there's a certain place that you learn to go to, which only in retrospect did I realize that's the I am in me. Well, I went there to be as close as I could with other people who were suffering when they, I frequently told them that they were dying. When you come from the right place in a transaction like that, it's very healing. And I talk about this in the book. I actually got to the place where I could tell people that they were going to die and we would work our way through the alarm and they would wind up extremely grateful that we talked about it. It wasn't forbidding to them at all once we got over the hump and and through that incredibly horrible realization that the self has to deal with. And I think the way we got through it was we wound up both in that place of the I am together. And that's really what healing, that, that's the root of what I would call healing is actually about. Very different from curing. As a good doc, I believe you need to be good at both. But unfortunately, today in medical education, we teach everything about curing and we've kind of forgotten about the healing part. Now you have to pick that up on your own. But that's really what the book is about. Yes, what you just said is true. Uh, People from the perspective of the self, which is where we all live at 24 hours a day, asleep and awake, from that perspective, it would seem that you're tremendously diminished when your life comes to an end and you lose everything. And in fact, you do. As you work with people who are dying, they do lose one by one those aspects of their personality, their, of course, all their belongings, their friends. You do lose all that. What it's impossible to comprehend unless you enter that place of the I am and look from there, which you can do if you learn through meditation, there's a different perspective when you come from there. In the book, I try to show and tell about people who have been through experiences that reveal to them that what you see, what is revealed to you there, is so much deeper, wider, lighter, uh, and more profound than your day-by-day life that you come to realize, and this takes work and time to, to get, but what you find when you live in the realm of yourself, and I think what may happen when you die, is that you experience a reality that is so much more real and profound than the life in yourself on earth ever was, that it could really change your perspective. And for all we know, it changes everybody's perspective when they actually do die. Uh, You know, again, I, I go into more detail in the book and I think this is a very tough concept to grasp. Why? Because you and I are talking to each other through ourselves. (laughs) You can't, it's very tough to convey the reality of how grand and perfect 
reality actually is by using language from person to person, from self to self. Very, very tough to realize. But that word realize is important because when you do find that place and you find it from that other perspective, then you know what it's about. But the difficulty with the psilocybin experience is it's ineffable. You come back to earth and to yourself and you forget three quarters of it and you can't express in language what you what you experienced. It's almost impossible. And I hope in the book I've been able to bring some of that across, but it's tough to do that with language. And um, all spiritual visionaries will say the same thing. You've you got to use parables and other vehicles to get it across because the self and the mind find it very difficult to accept and understand. It, it has to come through experience. So that's the quandary and the opportunity because you can experience that before you die. Again, in the book, I like to say that you can find who you really are before you die, or you can wait and let dying do it for you because that's what dying does. It, it takes apart all those things that are not the real you until only the real you is left, and that, that's what you leave with. It's also what you come into life with if you're familiar with delivering babies. You know, there it is. It's very paradoxical and very tough to express and understand through language, but it may be more of a fact. It may be more real than what we day by day regard as reality. This is, again, an area where, as you point out, doctors, they're not trained to address this. You sort of pick it up on the job, and the training is all about curing and keeping life going, but not really facing death. So what advice do you have maybe for the medical establishment in terms of addressing end of life and facing death? Well, I think the, what happened with me was I got to know a few people who were actually dying, and I still don't know why I chose to turn toward those people and not turn away. I think many doctors in training, it starts real early. Uh, you know, death is regarded in medicine kind of as a failure. And so you just turn away and go on to the next case. And you might call the chaplain or uh, a psychologist or somebody to help that person in that family out. Or you might call hospice and kind of hand off the suffering person and their family to other people, other, other specialties to handle it. My advice to especially residents, fellows, people who are still learning, and all doctors ought to be, but when you're really still in that learning process, sit with people who know they're dying and get out of your giving advice mindset that all of us doctors are taught to be in all the time and do some serious listening. Learn what questions to ask. And one of my favorites, all of these things are ultra simple. You know, ask, how are you? And then say, how are you really? <laughs> because everybody starts at that superficial level of, of the self. But if you stay with it and keep asking that question and really listen, then you get down to brass tacks. And people whose treatment options have run out and who have gotten over that hump and are in a place where they know what's coming and they accept it, those folks and doctors don't get to talk together much. I wish that would happen more. In fact, I, I wish it were an integral part of medical training because I think we would do a lot better if we approached death in a way that made it part of life as opposed to something we reject. 
we were talking with Dr. Brad Stewart, his new book, Facing Death, Spirituality, Science, and Surrender at the End of Life. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Oh,